Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Rishi Desai. Helping to lead one of the nation's most prestigious medical schools is a challenge at any time. But especially now, when the fight against the COVID pandemic is far from over, our guest today, Dr. Vineet Arora, found herself in just that position a few months ago as she became Dean of the Medical Education at the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine. Dr. Arora is no stranger to Pritzker, having served as a clinician, researcher, and educator there for 16 years. In her immediate pastoral, she oversaw the clinical learning environment and describes herself as a bridging leader, building alignment between the clinical and educational sides of the institution. She's also involved nationally in efforts to improve gender and racial diversity in medicine and is a proponent of applying adult learning theory. So we have more than enough to ask her about on today's show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rishi. And I actually just started in this job July 1st, so it hasn't even been a month yet. So it's a wild rock, but I'm here. Awesome. Well, maybe what we'll do is we'll ask you questions today, and then I'm going to ask you again, maybe in a year, and we'll compare your answers in terms of how you're feeling. That would be fascinating. (laughs) So maybe we can just start with your background, you know, what got you started in healthcare and, and specifically internal medicine? Yeah, so actually I went to Johns Hopkins for undergraduate. I'm from Maryland, and I went to Washington University in St. Louis for medical school, um, which was a departure leaving for the middle of the country, a place I had never lived before. And um, my brother has spina bifida, chronic neurological disease, a birth defect. So I've always been interested from the patient side, you know, growing up with a patient in our household and sort of accompanying my parents to his doctor visits. Um, I'd always been interested in a variety of things related to medicine, including, you know, why was it so hard for us to always understand what doctors were saying to us? And when I got to medical school, I was kind of one of those people that liked everything and I had a hard time making a decision. And sometimes that's very paralyzing for young people, especially in the field of medical school and medicine where you're encouraged to subspecialize or, you know, pick your focus. When you tend to like cross cutting things like I did, like, the system and, you know, how do we communicate better or, you know, how do we make sure that we're delivering the right care to the right person at every moment? Um, That can be a little bit disorienting given the nature of the way clerkships are structured. And so in the end, I was between, you know, um, you know, I remember somebody who's a chief resident in surgery was like, you should do dermatology. That's the new hot thing. You're going to be great at it. And so I did my dermatology rotation and I really liked the medically rare stuff. And I, you know, the you know, the hospital pieces. I really liked going to the hospital to do the consults, Uh, but the pace of clinic didn't really work for me as well as the conditions that I was seeing in clinic. And, you know, maybe that's because I, uh, I just couldn't get behind it, you know, in terms of my passion. And then I did my medicine sub internship and that's when it really gelled, you know, so it was late in my year that I realized I liked everything. I liked having that undifferentiated patient and sort of working through it. But I also really liked the system and you know navigating through the system. Um, and so that's why I chose internal medicine. I also took health administration classes and public health classes all the way since Johns Hopkins. And I realized that if I wanted to ever think about policy or health system science on a larger stage, it might be easier if I was in a more general field than in a more specialized field. That's not as true anymore, but I I still think that that was the mental mindset at the time. That makes a lot of sense. And and I'm curious, you said the pace, was the pace too fast, too slow, or was it something different from that? 
I think that what's interesting is, you know, I became a hospitalist. And so I think those early days, I was really trying on both hospital medicine and clinic. And I ended up gravitating to the hospital because I really liked working with that faster pace of discovering diagnoses. You know, I I like sort of cracking the mystery of that undifferentiated case. Um, And so what's funny is that's not a specialty, but I sort of feel like that's very common in hospital medicine. It does occur in ambulatory care as well many times over time, I've seen that happen. It just, to get that exposure as a medical student is incredibly rare and even more rare 20 years ago because we didn't have that type of rotation structure and certainly not as a resident. I think about that a lot when I think about, you know, the needs of our country and ambulatory practice and inspiring future physicians to enter ambulatory practice because I did not get exposed to those well-delivered systems to really think about that. And so I think that it behooves us to really think about that. But I tended to really gravitate towards the hospital side since that was what I was most familiar with. But also I did like those early hours to try to, you know, wrap myself around a case and then make a decision and then see the next day, did it work or not, which is a lot harder to get that satisfaction in ambulatory care. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, personally, I ran away from all the fast-paced parts of medicine <laughs> to what I could find is the slowest part, which is outpatient care. And, and I, I enjoyed that clinically. Yeah, actually, I almost applied in critical care. So I was really gravitated to the inpatient side. So I almost applied in critical care medicine, you know, because hospital medicine was still pretty new. And uh, Bob Wachter's article in the New England Journal of Medicine came out when I was a fourth year medical student. And I did a report on it for a health administration class. And so never discount the value of what you might put out there, you know, as a publication on, on young people. When I was, you know, again, struggling, you know, second year resident, do I apply for fellowship or not? I'm glad they moved the goalpost. Now our uh, medicine residents have more time. You know, I also really like sleep and I like sleeping myself. And so I just was like, I loved the ICU, but the sleep deprivation was really difficult. I mean, I trained before duty hours. So to me, I, I just couldn't wrap my head around that. And I made a personal choice. And there was this new field of hospital medicine. So I thought, oh, let me try this out because this seems like I get the best of both worlds. And to be quite honest, uh, you know, sometimes there are things you're good at and things you're not as good at. And ventilators were something that I was like, you know what, I'm not as good at ventilators. And that would be something I'd have to really work hard on. Whereas I really like talking to my patients and doing the discharge part. And so that was why I thought hospital medicine was for me. Wow, that's a great analysis, a lot of insight into kind of what you like and what you don't like, and obviously shaped your decision really nicely. You know, I'm curious, you mentioned sleep, and I just finished a a book a while ago called Why We Sleep. It's a beautiful book, well-written, about the importance of sleep. You know, there's a huge epidemic of physicians that are underslept, and that's just one element of it, you know, undernourished, not exercising as much as they need to, and it leads to a a sense of fatigue, a sense of uh, jadedness. I'm curious, what are y'all trying to do to address that at Pritzker? Yeah, so actually, currently, I would say during the COVID pandemic, it's even worse. We have a new study that shows that during, um, you know, high clinical surge times, you know, when people are most clinically active during the pandemic, I wish this study 
had no relevance uh, now because I thought, oh, by the time this is out, the pandemic will be over, but it's not. And it's, you know, we're surging again. Um, we know that healthcare workers and especially those that are serving in front lines are going to experience a myriad of sleep issues, not just related to the work pressure, but related to the non-work pressure, their kids, their all the other stuff going on in their life and pandemic worry. And so there is, you know, and technology and doom scrolling, that's real. Um, and I think that uh, one, one of the first things to do to really change behavior, especially personal behaviors like this, is raise awareness. Um, and unfortunately, there's literature that shows that education around sleep is woefully lacking in the medical field, particularly for physicians, but also for nurses and other groups that have long shift problems. And so um, we really need to get more formal curricula into place. And so fortunately, we were working on doing that. Um, and we need to do it not just at our medical school, but as a nation. Um, I was fortunate also to have a grant from the NIH to develop curricula for hospitalists, residents, and nurses about how to help patients sleep in the hospital. And so again, you know, really thinking about, you know, this is a top problem that patients experience, but not something that really clinicians got around because they were kind of divorcing it as a patient experience issue and not a health issue, um, even though there is a bevy of research to show that perhaps that high blood pressure in the morning or that, you know, my patient's hyperglycemic and I don't know why, could be sleep loss or, you know, they're having delirium. And so, again, just connecting the dots. And certainly I would say what's really fascinating is seeing how things have evolved with residency training as well. And so uh, we are one of the first programs in the country going back 20 years um, that offered funding for a taxi ride home at that time for drowsy driving, which uh, after a call shift, which has now turned into funds for ride share, not just to leave the hospital, but also to come back in the morning, because of course people would be like, what if I left my car? The key here is harm reduction. We know residents work long shifts um, and there's been a lot of effort to try to reduce the length of those long shifts and where we settle is still a moving target sometimes but at the same time we know that that happens and drowsy driving would be a never event in my book and certainly drowsy driving that would harm somebody um, either yourself or somebody else for example which has happened and so that's why it behooves hospitals and programs to really invest in programs so that they can coach their residents about this, as well as how to take precautions and provide systems for people to avoid having to get in the car where um, they would be behind the wheel and have to make a critical error. It's a really, really uh, phenomenal point about drowsy driving. I think that people take it as kind of not as serious as drunk driving, uh, when in fact, obviously, the literature bears out that, you know, losing a certain amount of hours can be equivalent to having a drink and it's very, very dangerous. And the challenge here is that for drinks, it's actually more concerning, and here's why. In a court of law, if you were like, well, was this person driving under the influence? We have tests, right, that can document that. And you know, those people are subjected in the field to a breathalyzer test and a blood alcohol test, and we have definitions. We don't have those for drowsy driving, you know? So there's no test. Uh, what ends up happening in court is that they would subpoena and look at your schedules. And so that's what I end up telling people is that, you know, remember that you're at risk based on your schedule. That's the inherent risk there. And we don't have a test. And so it's hard to prove. And just like friends don't let friends, you know, drive drunk, same friends don't let friends drive drowsy. And so we have to rely on each other as a community. You're looking out for your peer. If your peer is falling asleep at conference or just does not look well, you know, that's when you 
need to be like, hey, use the ride share. Because sometimes people don't think about it for themselves. Um, and then also strategic use of caffeine, naps. I mean, there's a lot of different tools in the toolbox. And sometimes people forget that, you know. Um, and so there are ways to even do them together. Caffeine works in a very short term effect, um, you know, to help could help you get home, um, but it doesn't work right away. And so there's this idea of the caffeine nap, you know, you drink your espresso, and then you go to sleep for 30 minutes, and then you wake up, people are very afraid to do a caffeine nap, because they they're like, I'm gonna fall asleep in the hospital, and then be stuck here and have to come back. But you know, set an alarm that won't happen, you can count on somebody else to wake you up. And even some sleep is always better than no sleep. And so the thing people worry about is, well, if I sleep, I'll just be exhausted when I wake up. That is the grogginess, the sleep inertia upon waking, which caffeine can actually help. So caffeine doesn't eliminate your sleep debt. You still need to sleep it off over the next few nights, uh, but it can help with that alertness. And that's why you know, in the morning, a lot of us will gravitate to get that morning coffee so that we feel like we've, you know, overcome that sleep inertia. And so there's a lot of science here. Again, the science isn't out. It's tragic that as a field that depends on science and a field that operates under great sleep loss, that we don't have this at the tip of our fingertips. And so I would argue we need to really do a better job of doing the training and also making systems changes. I do think not every call schedule is the same. Um, and so there's this big chronic debate. <laughs> Sometimes I think things will settle and, you know, we'll make an answer. And then, you know, kind of like COVID, things move and then the answers change. Early in my career, I wrote a paper about like the bolus versus the drip system, you know? So do you, there are some residents who want to concentrate their pain and then have an easy day off, you know? And then there are others that are like, I don't want to concentrate my pain and they'll rather prefer the drip system. That's the analogy for the 24, you know, Q4 call schedules versus a night float or a day float call schedules. People have very different emotional reactions to both of those because I think people's preferences vary. And so people's ability to function under sleep loss varies and even our ability to function at night and day varies and so with so many night float systems that pop up which are all trying to help with sleep loss they create other problems and so you need to then you know like i remember adjusting a lot of my talks because the question i was getting is which i get from a lot of nurses is i can't how do I adjust to nights? How do I adjust to days? You know, people have a lot of problems with that. So just because you put in a night float system doesn't mean your sleep problems are going to go away. People still need to be trained on how to overcome some of these issues to um, to really perform as best as they can, but also admit when they need help. You know, pilots are routinely checking with themselves, you know, daily check-in, fitness for duty, you know, am I fit for duty? Um, am I sick? Am I fatigued? You know, et cetera. They run through a checklist. This is not something we have done in medicine. I think with COVID, we've gotten better with the symptom check-in to make sure if I'm sick, I'm going to go get tested. That is a sea change, right? I mean, we have done early studies to show that, you know, 60% of residents had come into work sick, you know, and um, and so that that in itself has been a sea change. Can we do better on fitness for duty? Absolutely. Um, but fitness for duty will only work if we as a system accept that we're going to create systems where people are going to cover each other. And that can be very difficult when you've only got one resident on your rotation um, or you've only got one fellow. And so how we do that, and especially in these smaller fields, is, is still up for grabs. Um, and also for attendings. I mean, I think the other challenge here is that 
There are um, situations where I've heard that residents have had more protected schedules around sleep, and then they go prepare for their interview for practice, and they're like, I can't work in this area because I've never worked like this. And the truth about our workforce, especially in certain rural areas and um, medically underserved areas, is we simply don't have enough clinicians to meet the needs. And, and so you have a lot of people that are on call for a week at a time and being woken up you know with various questions and people don't seem ready for that and so we do need to do a better job of reconciling people's expectations with practice but also supporting them especially during those critical times of training so that they can highlight when they have needs and when they are not healthy that they can actually take the time they need to become healthy it's also kind of an interesting point around martyrdom because for so long i think a lot of physicians have kind of taken pride in coming in when they're a little tired, you know, and, and kind of wrapping up their patients' needs before they sign out, so they're not signing out too much. And there's sort of um, an unspoken, I guess, sense of accomplishment when you do things like that. But in fact, we're asking folks to do the opposite and say, hey, feel free to sign things up and take care of yourself. And so, you know, going back to Pritzker, then how do you teach that? Or how do you instate that, you know, when for so long it's been the other way? It's really fascinating because when duty hours came into being, generations of physicians that were older accused the younger generation of being unprofessional when they were following duty hours. And, you know, I I, I was very concerned about that because I was like, they're doing what they are supposed to do. And we should not be maligning them for following the rules that have been set by our own self-governing organization. Um, and because of this, because this happened, many of them didn't follow the rules. And therefore, you know, when any study that looked at compliance with duty hours was low, you know, and so and then any study that looked at duty hours, you're like, well, this doesn't change anything. And you're like, well, are people adhering? You know, so definitely you've got to get your faculty on board. And sometimes they might not be on board and they need to be coached or taught how to get there. You also have to get the residents on board and the other learners. I mean, students have duty hours as well. So I think those are all key pieces to the puzzle of making sure that you've got the buy-in. And I would say that our newest generation, especially the younger generations coming now, are really attuned to this. I mean, look at Simone Biles, you know, Naomi Osaka, right? These are headliners, right? They're of that generation. They're of the generation that are like, I'm okay disclosing that I need to have a mental health day, you know, that's like unheard of in my generation, you know, um, even saying the word mental health and yourself is like unheard of, right? It'd be like, are you okay? You know, like, okay, you know, uh, and, and so I just find that that's somewhat refreshing, but I also need to learn because I haven't wrapped my head around that, you know, personally yet. And um, that's the reverse mentoring. They're coaching us, you know, that they're bringing us along to say, this is our world and you know, here's what we expect. And so so we have to listen and accommodate. Um, and so where we will end up is some happy middle, which we always do, because the work also needs to get done. And so that's the challenge, right, is we have a fixed amount of workforce. And unless we make dramatic system changes, a great example is the hospitalist movement, infusions of hospitalists, nurse practitioners, um, advanced practice providers, make it possible for us to have resident duty hours. You know, that has made it possible for academic hospitals to liberate off the reliance of residents to basically provide those training environments. That needed to happen through years after those policies went into place. And so similarly, it's not going to be enough to have the culture without the system. And so it's going to require getting into the hearts and minds of people, but also 
restructuring systems. And I'm going to be really honest, that's not going to come from one dean. You know, that's going to be a sea change. It's going to come from many people thinking about this and investing in it. Um, and that's where I'm enthusiastic about being part of the solution. Uh, but it, it will require answering really critical questions like who's going to take care of the patient when somebody has a mental health day off, you know. And COVID has actually taught us that. That's been one positive in the sense of, you know, you don't want your healthcare workforce to get sick, but in a pandemic, they did. And we had to remove chunks of people out of the healthcare workforce. And then what? You know, that was more disaster times. And, you know, you learned how to, you know, keep the workforce, you know, in phases like an army, you know, who could be up on first. But the whole idea of a symptom check in and not coming to work when you're sick, I think that we need to appreciate that that is a sea change for medicine, right? That is a huge sea change. How can we use that? And the fact that for the first time ever, I had an attending Jeopardy system in my hospital, you know, for the first time ever, you know, in 20 years, can we continue that, right? Because right now as an attending when I'm on service, I would, you know, it'd be very hard for me to call up sick. I don't have a Jeopardy. You know, I would know I would be pulling somebody or plaguing somebody. Is there ways to continue some of those elements so that we can have structures for at least some understanding that people are not on all the time and they have off days? Well, maybe then on that note, a final question is what advice do you have, not just for um, the mentors, you know, that are leading us through, but what about early career professionals that are kind of just starting their journey in medicine what would you say to them as they're coming out during COVID? I would say there's a lot of opportunity. You know, we're redesigning what medical education and the clinical learning environment should look like post-COVID, you know, and that includes from the undergraduate, graduate, continuing medical education, the whole nine yards, including use of simulation. Uh, here's a great example, you know, should all lectures be taught in a lecture hall? Should certain elements of residency training remain virtual? Should we be using simulation more for rare cases like training in a pandemic? There's so many unanswered questions and ways to engage and get involved for junior faculty in medical education. The key though is finding out what your specific system and organizational needs are. Can you plug a hole in your system and make that a niche? so that that can become something that you are known for and that you can have professional academic growth and advancement for. I get asked a lot of questions about success in academia. And so I think that's really the key is, you know, find out the, where the holes are that you can plug that are timely. And uh, for me, that happened to be this issue around duty hours and handoffs. Um, and every now and then I'm like, I don't want to talk about duty hours and handoffs, but I'm here I am back talking about it. And then focus on doing it well and trust the fact that your growth will be parallel to how you are able to problem solve. And we need a lot of problem solvers right now. And so I think it's a great time to be coming out. It can feel daunting, um, but that's when also mentorship can really help as well. And so you sometimes have to leave the nest. I never left the nest, but sometimes you have to and don't be afraid to as well. And so those would be my parting words of advice. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Orr, for being with us today. That was fantastic. Thank you. I'm Rishi Decide. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>